Now, our passage this morning begins in John chapter 19. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to find that passage and look at this very first sentence. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Now, over the next few sentences, we discover that it was evening more by grief and fear than by time. Right? They're locked in. They're afraid. Can you see them? The disciples huddled together, tightly closed up in this room, afraid. And if you're afraid during the daytime that your life can be taken and mistreated, you know the night brings its own form of terror. Can you see the darkened clouds of fear and grief and sadness weighing down on the disciples? Just one sentence prior to this verse, we learned that Mary had encountered the risen Lord and had run and joyfully told the disciples. She had given them this report that Christ has been raised. But here they are. Very next, that's verse 18. Verse 19, what's the response? (laughs) Lock the door. Afraid, fear. They do not believe Mary. Why? Why don't the disciples believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? It's funny. Back in the scene right before, Mary Magdalene is at the tomb looking for Jesus' dead body. And she discovers his body, right? But he's not dead. He's raised from the dead. She finds the living Jesus. And the interesting thing is, she doesn't even recognize him. Not until what happens. Do you know this part of the story? When does she know it's him? When he calls her name. And in this morning's passage of Scripture, we see that the disciples don't recognize Jesus until he shows them his wounds, right? Thomas, I won't believe it unless I see the wounds. How is it? And and even with the disciples, it's clear. He shows up, he says, peace, he shows the wounds, and then it says they have joy, they see who he is. How is it that Mary and the disciples do not recognize Jesus right away? It's because they cannot see in the dark. They cannot see through the darkness of their fear and their grief and their loss and their despair. They cannot see through the darkness of their unfulfilled expectations. This is not what they were expecting. And so they can't recognize him. They can't see him. So notice it's so interesting how Jesus responds to all of this darkness, right? This darkness of grief and this darkness of fear. How does he respond? He shows up in the room and what does he say? Peace. Peace to you. By the way, that's why we say this in the middle of our service. We say to one another, peace be with you. Now think about who he's saying this to. 
He's talking to the ones who did not believe Mary. Back up the story. He's talking to the ones who abandoned him. Who denied him with curse words in his moment of torture. He's talking to the ones who ran away. He's talking to his betrayers. And what does he say to them? Peace. There's peace between us. He's talking to his closest friends who had forsaken him. And it's to these that he gives himself and that he gives his peace. He comes to his disciples and he gives himself to them. Can you imagine what they heard in that word? I mean, when they realized who he was, what do you think they were expecting they deserved? A clobber. Justice. But instead, it is the same Jesus that comes to you the night of your affair. And he says, peace. He brings his forgiving love to these disciples. He doesn't criticize them or judge them for their fears and their failure. He doesn't make a critical remark to Peter like your mother does, just to remind him. I know, right? See, that's the problem. We're forecasting on God, our own fathers. Instead of learning to see our fathers through the lens of God, we're looking at God through the lens of our fathers and our mothers. He doesn't criticize Peter for abandoning him and denying him. He he doesn't make John feel guilty for his failure. He doesn't smash them with the reality of their weaknesses and their betrayals. You know what he's doing? He is confirming his choice of them. Because I'm convinced right now they think he was wrong to have chosen them. Isn't that what you would have been thinking? Why me? I so messed up. He made. Instead, what is he? In that one word, I think they heard the God of Jesus saying, I haven't changed my mind. I wasn't wrong in picking you. He's confirming his choice. He chose them before they betrayed him, abandoned him and denied them. And here he is again, choosing them after they've abandoned him, denied him and forsaken them. They are his beloved ones and he is here for them. When we are frightened, don't we do the same thing? Don't we hide behind the locked doors of our own hearts, unable to reach out to others? Isn't that us? Yet Jesus comes to each of us. He doesn't give a flip that you've locked the door. It doesn't stop him. The tomb couldn't. And who would have thought the door could have? And you know what he says to us in our hearts? Grown men. Letting the world know we got it under control, but inside filled with guilt and shame. You know what he says to us? Peace to you. At a level that is deeper than all that is wounded and fearful inside of us. Jesus reveals that he loves us. And he forgives us. For all of our failures. 
Have you betrayed your spouse? Are you one of the many in our culture that has? Your children? Have you sinned in ways against your parents and your closest friends that you can't even bring yourself to say you're sorry because it's just such a bad thing? He loves you. And He forgives you. For all of our anger and our impatience and our selfishness, Jesus loves us and He forgives us for all of our betrayals and our lying and our greed. He comes into that darkness. You know why? Because like Thomas, you are a unique and beloved child of God. And He'll come back if He has to. Jesus will always be with you in all of the pain and joy of life. He will come to you. But what else is going on in this passage? It's not just that He comes to us in the pains and joys of this life. He will come to you in the life to come. I mean, that's going on here. A resurrected body. The Jesus that Mary and the disciples encounter here, he's not a soul floating around. He's not moaning myrtle. The cultured people among us know what I'm talking about. It's a humorous character in Harry Potter. He's not moaning myrtle, right? Moaning myrtle. She can go through doors, right, Eva? This is right. She can go through walls. The whole point of that in Harry Potter is that she doesn't have a body. That's not the point of this passage by him going through the wall. It's not that he doesn't have a body. The point of the passage is, look at my scars. I do have a body. Touch them, I do. And you might say, well, how can a body pass through a wall? I would just say, how can a body walk on water, right? Where's the weight when he's on the water and where's the mass when he's going through the walls? With God, all things are possible. The point of the passage is not that he's incorporeal. It's that he has a body. That's the scars. That's what... Now look, this Jesus who had healed everybody, right? Could he have healed those scars? Could he have taken... Look, I've got plastic surgeon friends who can take the scars away. Surely if I know somebody who can, Jesus could have done it, right? (laughs) Was it beyond him? Oh, I can raise myself. I can be raised from the dead, but these marks, how do I get rid of these marks? (laughs) Why did he keep the marks? Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it's him. Why? Because this is the same body that came out of the closed womb of a virgin... That hung on a cross. It is the same body. It is the very body. That has walked around Palestine for 33 years. The very body that they've seen and felt before. Up until this moment. This is the resurrected body of Jesus. And now he enters this room through a closed door. That's crazy. Yeah, but it doesn't even compare to the fact that he was dead. I mean, if you drink the Kool-Aid on the death. Don't worry about the wall stuff. This is, this is easy. Why? He's doing this so that Sloan can know that on the other side of death, Sloan's going to get his body back. The same body. This is so that you and I, no matter what we're going through, we know that death will not have the final victory over these bodies. 
It's so that when you die and when I die and our flesh and our bodies, they die and they decompose. If you believe in Jesus, you, you will be raised. The you that God loves and made and knit together in your mother's womb, that you will be raised. You will have life after death if you can say like Thomas in verse 28, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my God. You will be saved from death to life. That's the whole point of John's gospel, right? Verse 30. Look at verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But not just so that you can stop there. There's a reason you need to believe that. That by believing that, you may have life in his name. Do you believe that? Do you believe this story? That this Jesus is who I'm saying he is? Children, you've got to really bear, you've got to really come to grips with this. Teenagers, this is the most important thing you can ever face. Do you believe this? This thing John is telling us, John's gospel, he gets to the end of it and he says, I've told you all of this stuff. Why have I told you this? Because the surprising discovery that the Messiah, the Son of God, is none other than Jesus. That discovery is God's solution to all of your fears and all of your failures. God's solution to the brokenness of the world is the Jewish Messiah. John is saying the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for is Jesus. And you, that verse is technically translated. I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Blah, blah, blah. It's, technically, it's, these things are written that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. The whole book was written not to identify Jesus, but to identify that the Messiah is Jesus. And if you do that, if you believe that there is one creator God and he entered into this unique relationship with Israel. I mean, pick any book in the Old Testament, any of the historical books, right? You read them and you don't get... I mean, you see that this is a story and that there's this God and he's got this relationship with Israel and they keep failing and there's got to be something to fix this. And the whole book of John was written to say, yeah, Jesus is what fixes it. And if you believe this, if you believe that God's Messiah, God's anointed one, God's solution to the world's problem is Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, who lived and died 2,000 years ago. If you believe that, you will have personal salvation. Like the disciples and Mary and Thomas, you will be saved from your fears and your failures. And, I mean, don't, don't overlook that verse 23 if you forgive sins. of it. You will be saved from eternal judgment for every sin you've ever committed. You'll have life, real life, 
A new life, the very life of God will flow out of you. So the question is, do you believe this story? That Jesus is God's son, the one and only solution to sin and death and decay. And if you put your faith in him, God will put his life in you. And you will be raised from dead. And mom and dad, if your children have this, even if they die a premature death, you have hope that they will be raised. Now this is difficult to buy into. I mean, just listen to what I'm saying. I mean, has it struck you how kooky this is? Back in chapter 4 of John's Gospel, John 4, 22, Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. You've got to buy into this whole story that's going on with God and the Jews. Remember, Jesus is the Christ. That means he's the Jewish Messiah. Christ isn't his last name, it's his title. It becomes his last name within a few decades. But technically, in the beginning, it's his title. It means that he's this person Israel's been waiting on. Salvation is from Israel, but it's for the whole world. This long story of God and his his relationship with Israel has reached its climax in Jesus. Now the salvation that God has brought to Israel is to come from the Jewish world, from Jesus, a Jew, from his disciples who are Jews, to the whole world. This is weird stuff. This is science fiction. I mean, it really ranks up there with our best science fiction books. The strange story of God made man, of a crucified savior, of new bodies. I mean, how do you handle that in science, Alec, right? I mean, you're sitting in science class, you're learning about all this stuff, and then Alec throws that out there, right? I mean, how's that going to roll over? How does this story please understand? The problem is so many of us have been inoculated by church. We don't even know it's weird anymore. But some of you know it's weird because you've tried to say it to somebody who looked at you and made you look like you really looked when you said it. So here's my question for you. How... Does this story become credible to our community? Because it's incredible. Like, it's not credible. How does this story become credible to people that we live around, to some of you in this church, whose entire mental training is that you do not need the God hypothesis to explain the world. How, how does this story become credible to people who, who don't need this story to sort life out? Life makes complete sense without the story. How does the story become plausible to people who can explain and manage life without the hypothesis? of a God because we're not first century Palestinian Jews nobody I know of was raised sitting around a dinner table waiting on the Messiah 
I mean, that's who John wrote it for. People who were waiting on the Messiah. So he wrote his whole gospel. Remember how it translated that verse? He wrote his whole gospel to say, this is that Messiah. But we're dealing with people who don't give a flip about a Messiah. They don't need a Messiah. All they need is a good education. How does this story become possible? Do you know people who don't even ask the question that you're giving the answer to? How can this strange story of God made man, of a crucified Savior, of resurrected bodies, how can it be made plausible? I know of only one answer to that question. There is only one thing I know of that can make the gospel credible. Even here in the valley where there's a Christian memory. The only thing I know of that can make the gospel plausible is a congregation that really believes the gospel. The only thing I know of that can make the gospel credible is not some argument about the existence of God. The only thing I know of that can make the gospel plausible and credible is a congregation that actually believes this story of reality. Look, when we tell the gospel, the story of the one and only God who created the world and that there were humans and they had fallen into sin and death and that it wasn't supposed to be this way. Humans weren't supposed to be dying. That this God entered into a unique relationship with one of those humans named Abraham who had a bunch of babies. And then with the whole nation that came out of Abraham called Israel. And he did this in order to reveal himself to his creation. And this God then became a human and was crucified by his creation. And he was raised from the dead. And if you believe this, you'll be saved. Do you see how weird that sounds? Do you see that none of the logic in our community is set up for that move? And if you believe in this God, your belief has moral consequences. You don't believe, you are judged. I mean, that doesn't work in our community, right? You're judged for action, but now I'm saying you're judged for belief. That's, that's a totalitarian regime, isn't it? I mean, is that fair that the God of the universe decides salvation and judgment based on a belief? Do you see how the whole story is illogical to the plausibility structure of our community? And if you believe this, though, I'm saying to you, get this. Not only will your life be affected by it, but you will be raised from the dead with a new body. How do we get people to believe that? And when you're raised from the dead, guess what? God's going to do to the whole of creation what he does to your body. He's going to heal all of it. And you're going to be priests and kings in the new heavens and the new earth. How do we get people to believe that? How do you get your children to believe that? The only answer I know to that is a congregation that really believes it. When we tell the gospel story, in other words, it is not our technique of explaining the gospel that gets people to believe. And you should be glad of that. Aren't you glad you don't have to talk as good as me? Now, I'm not just joking, right? I've got a PhD in order to be able to talk in these ways, right? And I know that so many of you sit there and you think, I can't say these things like that. 
Aren't you glad? And I'm not saying I'm the best. I'm just, look, aren't you? It doesn't depend on our technique. It's not our technique that that changes people's minds and converts their wills. It is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that convinces people that this is the true story of reality. And the story that they've been trained mentally to buy into is the wrong story. It is the Holy Spirit that convinces people of which of the two stories is true. It's the Holy Spirit that leads people to believe it so much that they say, I'm sorry for my unbelief. It was wickedness and sin. Please forgive me for it to God. When I hear from people who have come to the Christian faith. Have you ever heard Stephen talk about it, how he came to the Christian faith? When I, when I hear people tell the story, it, it always amazes me. That their conversion to Christ is a very mysterious thing. And most people can't even fully put it into words. There are so many different elements. But the strategy is always in the hand of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone is the agent of conversion. That's the point of verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. I want you to go tell this story. But look what he follows it up with. He breathed on them his Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it's free. Do you know where the Holy Spirit is present? The Spirit of God is present in the believing congregation. When we gather to praise Jesus, the resurrected one. When we bring our worship to him and receive his body and blood, you know he's here because so many of you have experienced the presence of God as we do this thing on Sunday. That's why I encourage you to bring your friends to worship. As much for what happens here as for what they hear here. And the Holy Spirit is present in the believing congregation as we're scattered throughout this community in the daily obedience of our vocations. He's present when we bear the love of God in our conversations and in our meetings. The thing that brings men and women and children to know that the Messiah is Jesus And that Jesus is Lord, like Thomas's confession. Oh, now I see. You are my Lord and my God. The thing that brings men and women and children to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior is always the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. And how this happens is beyond our understanding. And it's beyond our control. But like the story we're focusing on from John's gospel, for someone to know that Jesus is Lord and Savior, look, it was not enough that Mary told them what had to happen for them to be converted. They had to personally experience Jesus. For someone to be converted, it requires the presence of the living God. Drawing them and challenging them. That is the Holy Spirit. 
The conversion of a human mind and will to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord and the Savior is strictly the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a mystery beyond our ability to control or fabricate or understand. That's the difference between coercion and evangelism. Biblical evangelism witnesses and refuses to coerce or manipulate people into belief because it deeply believes this is the work of God. That's the difference between proselytism and evangelism. It's when we refuse to coerce and we refuse to manipulate either psychologically or with a sword. Now this story, it requires the presence of the living God himself to convince people that it is plausible and credible. And God promises his presence to his congregations. To congregations who really believe the story. That's why when a church stops believing the story, it's a travesty. Congregations that really believe the story and we worship it and we we worship the God of the story and we celebrate the story and we care for one another in terms of this story. There is no way of explaining or proving this story other than a congregation that actually believes it. So a fundamental priority of our church must be to cherish and nourish our life together. Because it is the only thing we have to offer a world. I mean, we can run out and on our own tell the story, but apart from a congregation, it will have no plausibility. We must nourish our life together in our worship and our teaching and our care for one another. And as we nourish our life together, the new life of Christ becomes more and more our great and controlling reality. We begin to live it. We become a sign to this community of the kingdom of God. You know what I mean by a sign? I mean, we're like this big arrow pointing. People look at us and then their their gaze is brought toward the kingdom of God. We become a foretaste of God's kingdom. People come into the life of this community and they get a taste of what this is all about. They get a taste of the new heavens and the new earth because we're treating each other now according to the rules of what life will be like then. It's a foretaste. And more than that, we become bearers of the kingdom. We become Mary. We hold within our womb the Christ that we bring to the world. As we immerse ourselves in the worship of the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, as we embrace his kingdom in our lives, we become a congregation who powerfully establishes the credibility of the gospel story. Look again at verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. God has sent us as a church into this community. Why? For the same reason he sent his son. And we know back in John chapter 3 verse 16 why he sent his son. Because he loved 
the world. Why has God sent incarnation and the other gospel churches into this community? Because God so loved Harrisonburg and Rockingham County. He sent us here. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus says, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. You you think you moved here for a job. You didn't. God sent you here. And until you make that shift in your thinking, until you shift over from thinking you chose the valley and you realize that God chose for you to be in the valley, until you see that, you don't know the mission of God. And the mission of God is for this community. Why has God sent us into this community? Because he loves this community. Each person in this community is to him a Thomas, a unique individual. God doesn't see Harrisonburg He sees Joetta, an elf, and Alec. He saw Thomas wasn't there. Each person in this community is a unique person created by God with all of our fears and failures. And so God has sent us, this congregation and other believing congregations, into this community. How will this community, how will your neighbors and your family members and your work associates, how will they believe the gospel story? By this congregation really believing it and living it out. Each person in our congregation is a unique child of God. Sadie is as unique and beloved of the Father as Ed Good is. Every bit as much to the Father. He would have come back for Ed to help him understand and he would come back for Sadie and he would come back for the smallest infant in this room. Eight days later, he comes back for Thomas. Jesus cared for him personally and he knew what Thomas needed and he gave that to Thomas. He should have said to Thomas, chump, So why do we talk to kids that way? We must care for one another. Not just generally. We must like, be like Jesus to Thomas. We as a church, if we're going to embody the kingdom, we've got to embody the kingdom. And that means we don't have a mass of people in this room. We have David Cooper and Amelie. We have Allison and Hanson and Luke, right? We have individuals in this room. And if we are too big to know each other, we are too big to embody the kingdom of God. Right? I mean, if you're so big that you no longer see people, you just see categories of people. We must care for one another. Not generally, not vaguely, not abstractly, not in theory, but with actions. Tailored to the needs. Some in our church need to be cared for intellectually. We must bear one another's doubts. There are people in this church who are doubting. We need to know each other well enough to share that so that we can care for each other in that way. We must care for one another spiritually. There are people in our church that can't carry the weight of their sins. We must bear one another's sins. We must care for one another relationally. 
There are lonely people in our church and we must enter into their loneliness, not in abstraction, but in concrete actions. We must care for one another emotionally. There are people in our church, because of the way they were raised, they are broken by fear. And we must tend to one another's fears. We must care for one another physically. That's why it's so important when we get an email. So-and-so needs a meal. This is the kingdom of God stuff. This is it. That's, that, don't disregard that in your laziness. This is the kingdom. Because the way we care for one another establishes the credit. Don't complain about your friends and family not coming to Christ if you're not helping to establish the credibility of the Christ you're confessing. That's what this is. We must care for one another materially. Right? You just read the story through. Isn't that what they did in Acts? There was not a needy person among them. What were they doing? They were embodying the kingdom. And not only must we care for the whole person. We've got to care just as much for people's material needs as their spiritual needs. We can't divorce that stuff. We not only have to care for the whole person, we have to care for the whole of life. That's to say, our loving care for one another begins in the mystery of the womb. And it endures to the sorrow of the grave. Jesus comes into the room throughout all the seasons of life. And so we must come into one another's life throughout all the seasons. In the vulnerability of infancy. In the wonder of childhood. Don't wish that we didn't have so many children running around tripping us during the bagel hour. (laughs) You look far more like them from God's perspective than you think. And we must care for one another in the mystery of adolescence. When our culture crushes people. And we must care for one another in the weight of adulthood when families are trying to establish themselves. And we must care for one another in the frailty of old age. Throughout all the seasons, we must care and love one another specifically and tailor-made and intimately. And we must care not just for ourselves, but for this community, the whole community. God's care isn't selective. It extends to everyone in our community. And we are to embody God's mission to this community. We're sent in this community to care for it. To care for the lonely stranger. And the broken sinner. And the bereaved mourner. And the gifted leaders. And the got it together businessmen. And the overwhelmed housewives. We must care for the whole of this community. Because why? Because all are beloved of the Father. And that is our job. That's what we were sent here to do. This is what we are sent to do, to care for the whole of person and the whole of life and the whole of this community. Are you intimidated? Holy cow. How can we do this? What an incredibly expansive mission. I'm intimidated. I can't even care for myself. And I care a lot for myself. And now I'm supposed to care for you that way? That I care for myself? (laughs) When the Apostle Paul reflected on this in 2 Corinthians, you know what his response was? Who is sufficient for these things? That's a direct quote. 
I mean, isn't that what you're feeling like? Who? I can't answer every email that comes across. I just don't have time. And Paul answers the question like John does. Nobody's sufficient for this. That's the whole point of the Holy Spirit being breathed out on us. You can't handle this. You need some help. That's what Jesus was doing. Church of the Incarnation, we can incarnate God's love for one another because God has given us His enabling, empowering presence, the Holy Spirit. And as we do this, as we learn to incarnate God's love for one another, we will be the church for this corner of the world that God loves so much. We will be bearers of his love and his peace and his forgiveness of sins. Let's pray.